um, fun depending on your definition of fun. Uh, I, I would call it something like the Google Answers game, um, but uh, it, it goes under many names. I found out this week actually when I, was, when I was doing this that there's actually a formal version of it. There's a website you can go to called Google Feud, which is kind of like Family Feud. Do you remember Bert from the Family Feud? Oh, there's probably a younger Bert these days because he's, yeah, anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, you type a few words into Google and you find out what the popular answers to the end of that sentence are. So, for instance, if you type in, uh, is South Australia into Google, you get some moderately baffling responses. You, is South Australia still in a state of emergency? I can understand why you'd ask that. Is South Australia the driest state? You remember the ads, right? Yeah. Is South Australia Eastern Standard Time? That doesn't even make sense gram grammatically. I mean, of course it's not. Is South Australia a state or a territory? That's just rude. That is South Australia bigger than New South Wales? You betcha. How do you? How do you get monkeypox? How do you? Yeah, it, it sounds funny, doesn't it? Because it's got monkey and pox in it, but it's, it's actually not that funny. How, how do you solve a Rubik's Cube? How do you play Wordle? What about... What is your favorite? If you type what is your favorite into Google, what you find out is that there's a lot of people who want to ask people their favorite color in a foreign language, presumably to sound clever. Like, so there's, there's several kind of what is your favorite color Spanish? What is your favorite color Japanese? Sort of things going on there. I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I've never had that. Maybe, you know, it, it, statistically, some of the people in this room, maybe we've typed those things in at some point and, and, and sought to ask someone in Spanish what their favorite color is. Maybe it's just a common question on a Spanish test. I don't know. Rojo? Yeah, okay. Um, red? Yeah, that's red. Okay. Azul. Uh, if you type the right two into Google, the right two, you get some really interesting answers. Uh, the right to privacy is the top one. The right to bear arms is number two. If you type it into Bing, which is an alternative search engine, you get the right to bear arms as well, B-A-R-E. I'm not quite sure how that got there. Um, the right to vote, the right to education, the right to life, the right to play, the right to a fair trial. These are the, these are the top answers. But doesn't that list speak volumes on how seriously we take rights in our culture? You know, there's no messing around answers on that list. We recognize every single one of those things, don't we? There are a number of lenses through which people look at the world around them. Paradigms for understanding our lives and our priorities and choosing what we prioritize as the most important things and what we deprioritize as secondary and dispensable. Uh, one of the most common, if not the most common lenses that people look at the world through today is that of rights. Specifically, usually, it's, it's the lens of my rights. So, not, not me specifically, your own rights. Rights are perhaps the primary language with which the modern morality is formed. I don't know if you've noticed this. You can do anything as long as you don't impinge on my rights or on the rights of another person. Many of the big conversations in our day are about, you know, the big, the big political, the big ethical conversations are about how do rights interact with each other? How does your right to a fair go in employment interact with my right to practice my religion freely? How does my right of freedom of speech interact with the right of a platform or social media to, to censor their content? Now, I, it's worth saying, you know, I, 
I think we all feel a tension there, but and yet we'd all have a line, wouldn't we? You know, we all have a spot where we say, no, you're just recruiting terrorists, you can't say that. Um, sadly, um, now, sadly the church, especially the church in the West, I wanna focus this, uh, single us out there, has tended to match the culture here in how we approach this issue. Don't get me wrong, uh, we don't tend to focus on the same rights broadly as the culture that we're sitting in. Uh, but so often, Christians have been known for their focus on their own rights. Uh, often, often, Christians have yelled the loudest and the longest about our rights. Now, we're not going to enter into... If, you're, if you heard in any of those comments before about, about tensions between rights, we're not going to enter into those tensions today. That's not what we're here to look at. So I'm so sorry. If you want to talk about that, feel free to hit me up after the service. But today, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and chapter 9, and this passage speaks powerfully to this issue of rights. And Paul is going to plead with them and with us not to see the world through the lens of our rights, but through the lens of love. It's very much, it's very much an either-or situation, as we're going to see. Now, just to, just to jog you, you know, if you've been with us throughout this series, this is going to be familiar, and, and, and some of you will just roll your eyes and go, yeah, we've heard this before, but I just want to make sure we get this in our heads. In 1 Corinthians, what we get is a very situ situational letter. We get a letter where, in every part of it, Paul is addressing a specific local situation happening there. And into the situation, he, uh, you know, to give an example, you know, he's spoken to the issue of marriages and singleness. Very recently, we've looked at that. And, he, and he's spoken to issues like church divisions, and things like that, as well as some really messy sexual sin that's going in and on in the church we've looked at so far. And he's going to keep doing that. That's what he does. He addresses specific situations that are facing this church and questions that they're asking to him and things that he's heard about that are going on there. And every time he speaks a gospel principle into the situation, he actually looks to the scripture. Often he looks to the Old Testament, which is something he does today, and, and takes a principle that he sees fulfilled in Christ and he applies it into the situation of the church. And so you have a situation, you have a gospel principle, and you have an application. And the specific situation which, Paul, uh, which, which turns Paul to this issue of rights is an entirely foreign one to us. Now, you might, you might have been to this passage before, and we're pretty used to, in some circles, reading this as a, as a Bible passage about alcohol, but it's really, it's not. It's about food that's been sacrificed to idols. Literal, wooden, gold, stone, pictures of beings worshipped as gods and food that's been sacrificed to them. Um, now, and, and, and the question they're writing with, right, is, is, is can we eat it? Can we eat this food that has been sacrificed to, to another deity? Is that, is that all right, Paul? And, and, and in fact, it's not really a question. They're saying, yes, it is all right for us who have a strong mind. We'll get to that. But, but first, we need to say this is a this is a thing that we probably don't get, and it's not because we don't get idols, it's because we don't get meat the way that they did. Um, the way that meat was understood in the ancient world is really different to how we understand it. We understand meat as a thing that we have for lunch and dinner and sometimes breakfast, you know? Um, you know, and you might hear that and go, lunch and dinner, crazy, John, I just have it for dinner. But nevertheless, you know, most of us would eat meat like at least five times a week would be my guess, unless you happen to be vegetarian, um, in which case you, you really have to resist because it looks so good, doesn't it? Huh? Huh? No, sorry. Um, oh, I might get a letter. Anyway, um, but, but, 
but that's not how it was for them. Meat was a special occasion thing in the ancient world. And just, just the access to meat was not the same. Uh, and so, so when you ate meat, that was a celebratory thing. And so it was not as common as it is for us, but it was still common enough that it was a serious issue for these guys of this question because the only access to meat that they would have had regularly would have been this meat that has been sacrificed to idols. This is, this is something that we don't see today, but back then, religion, the religion of the Roman Empire and the state, uh, sorry, the, the commerce of the Roman Empire were intertwined. They were basically overlapping in all ways. You, if you were a part of a, a guild, such as the, the, you know, the butcher's guild, you would have sacrificed to idols within that guild when you were preparing your meat. All meat, basically, in the marketplace was sacrificed meat. So Paul was not speaking about going into a temple and eating meat in a temple whilst it's being sacrificed to an idol here. What he's talking about is this occasion of being able to go and buy meat and the question of, well, can they ever buy meat again? Because all of the meat has been sacrificed to idols, right? Or at least enough of it that you could never know that what you're buying hadn't been. And, you know, they're saying, well, Paul, we know that there's only one God, or, or at least the strong among us know that, those who've got a good ticker up here, and so we can eat food offered to idols, right? Because there's only one God, right, Paul? That's, that, you see the logic now, right? And, and Paul's response is that the gospel principle here is, is two-part. And he's kind of going to say yes and kind of going to say no. First, in verses 2 to 3, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, as if you, if you feel like you have this knowledge that allows you to have this right, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now notice, he doesn't say he's wrong. He says you're not knowing it right. There's a difference. The way that they know this is wrong. The approach they have is wrong. And he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Their focus, he's saying, is in the wrong place. They're focused so heavily on their knowledge of their rights, of what they can do. But Paul points to a better way. It's not about the great greatness of what you know. It's about the greatness of the one who knows you. The outworking of our love for God and our joy that he knows us, they are to be the focus, not our rights. And then the second part of the, the gospel principle comes in verse 6, where he's still responding to their kind of initial statements here. And he goes, he agrees. He says, yes, there's only one God. But see the true implications of that, Corinthians, and, and modern day Christians as well. Paul says, and this, this is where he's, he's actually referencing the Shema, which is this foundational moment in the Old Testament, this statement of who God is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the, 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 the basis of monotheism in our religion. And Paul says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And he works Jesus into it. And he says, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's really fascinating, isn't it? That's really important. On the one hand, he's agreeing with them, right? He's saying, yes, there is only one God. So in a sense, yes, it doesn't matter what you eat because if it's been sacrificed to a piece of wood, it's just a piece of wood, not a God. Um, but, but he's also 
putting a reminder in there, isn't it? Because he could have just said, yes, there's one God, if he just wanted to say that. Yeah, I want us to pay particular attention to those last words at the end of that verse there. We have to ask, what, what are the implications of this? In light of what he said about God knowing me, what are the implications of the fact that Paul says that Jesus is the one through whom we exist? Now, that's not just trying to say that Jesus is the creator. We know that because he's just said that Jesus is the creator like, like four words earlier. Jesus is the creator. But it's reminding us that through Jesus, we are who we are if we've believed in him. Through Jesus, we're a new creation. Through Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. We have our existence as his people in him because of him. In reminding us of, of that, that God knows us lovingly and in reminding us that our existence as God's children is through Jesus, Paul is pointing us, intentionally prodding the Corinthians and us to look to Jesus in this situation. Do you remember, do you remember the, the start of this letter, right, where he says, what's the power of God for us who believe? It's the word of the cross. And he's going, come on, look, look back, guys, look to the cross. The reason he's doing it is because he wants us to remember exactly how Jesus brought us to be lovingly known by God, how he brought us to our existence in God through the cross. A, a Christian understanding of rights. This is foundational. If you don't, if you don't get this, you, Christian, this is why we always get rights wrong often in the West, is we don't form our understanding of rights on the foundation of Christ, I believe. We have to form it on the foundation of the Saviour who surrendered his rights for us and understand that if we're followers of Jesus, rights don't come first. They don't not exist. Jesus had rights. He gave them for us. He had a right to remain in heaven, but he chose to come down, right? Like, that's a right, like, we don't have rights. You may, you may argue that you have the right to a peaceful life, but, like, in, a, in an eternal scale, we don't. In an eternal scale, we're all sinners who deserve God's wrath. But Jesus isn't. He is God who is in heaven, and he deserved, he had a right to heaven, to reign from heaven, to rule from heaven, and yet he chose to come down. He had a right to live in his comfortable throne above and yet he came and became a homeless man walking the road to Jerusalem for three years. He had a right to live forever like none of us do and yet he chose to give that right to die for us, to give us life. That's where, that's where Christian understanding of rights is founded, on the saviour who gives his rights for us. This is the principle that drives our understanding of our rights. The gospel shows us the God who put his love ahead of his rights for us. Love before rights. And that glorious view of who God is, it, it drives us to be to, towards a glorious reprioritization of our lives, you see. Because he put his love ahead of his rights we put love ahead of our rights. Paul's going to apply this in two ways here. I know, I know we've done six verses in the first little bit, but we're going to speed up now. We, we, he's going to apply it within the church, and he's going to apply it without the church, like outside of the church. 
for the, for the remainder of chapter 8, he's going to talk to us about the love over rights within the body of Christ. And it's, it's a really serious thing, what he says. Paul calls us to sacrifice our rights in love for one another, especially to protect the conscience of one another. Uh, in, this, in the rest of chapter 8, he's, really, he's speaking primarily to this issue of food sacrifice to idols, and yet we can draw this into any question of rights, because he does. He applies it generally. It's really serious what he says. In fact, although he says exercising your rights is not a sin, he says that it is a sin insofar as it harms the one who Christ died for. Do you see that harking again to the death of Christ as the foundation of how we act towards one another? The love that is in Christ, not our rights over one another that inform how we treat each other. Don Carson, if you don't know him, he's good. Uh, he's, he's, he's worth your time. But... Um, John Carson makes this smart a little bit for us uh, because I think naturally in ourselves we will tend to hear this kind of thing and think of someone who should be laying down their rights who shouldn't. That's, that's my tendency. I don't know about you. Um, John Carson says this. He says, This sort of self-denial is easy enough to admire in other believers. One can formulate all sorts of interesting theological lessons derived from Paul's treatment of what to do about meat that has been offered to idols. But the power of this position of principle becomes obvious only when we are called upon to abandon our rights. Here's another way of saying that. This is easy when it calls someone else to lay down their rights. But the harder question is, where does this call you? Where does this call me to lay down my rights within the body of Christ for the love of my brothers and sisters? There's countless ways you could apply that. I'm not going to do all of them because A, they're countless, but B, because we've got some limit of time here, but, but take a few examples to get your brain ticking, right? You might have a right to express yourself and to say what you want to say, to express an opinion. But is it loving to say those words the way that you say them to people? Is it edifying? Does it build up? Does it draw people towards Christ or push them away from? Do you drag fellow believers into bitterness when you speak? You know, our speech, so often we think we have a right to say whatever we want and, and we actually over and us underestimate ourselves when we do it. We think, well, it doesn't matter what I say anyway. I'm just a small person. Like, like my, my words aren't going to affect them. And so I can say whatever I want. You know, I overestimate my rights and I underestimate my influence when I do those things. So much damage is done when we speak loosely and just presume that what we say isn't going to matter. It's not going to have a little butterfly effect that fans out and affects everyone else. You have a right to speak. I don't want us to be a church that doesn't talk. I want us to be a church that speaks in a way that is informed by the love of Christ towards each other. Be careful how you lead your brother and sister in the words that you say. All of us lead other people. You don't have to be going, hey, I'm going to lead this person now to lead someone. All you need to do is talk. Here's one. Uh, this probably relates. You might have a right not to sing to a song because you don't like the, the type of music. Um, I've, I've run into that in churches my entire life, funnily enough. Um, uh, churches that sing 17th century um, like songs that had to be translated out of French 
and you know, German and, and s churches that sing like 2022 songs. They're so cutting edge that they want to put a synth in it, you know? And, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, people who will go, you know, I, I don't have to sing to that. that, that doesn't, I don't feel like that's worshipful. And, and like you're expressing a right there. Um, but here's the question. Does that right build your brother or sister up to worship God more? Or do you, do you tempt the one next to you of a weaker conscience to be dragged down by your lack of worship? You have a right to hang around with the people that you find easiest and most fun. The ones who, who just are comfortable. But in exercising that right, do you, do you make it so that the hard person, the difficult person in the church is eventually just going to disappear? Because the people who are meant to be the love the, the expression of the love of Christ towards them. Don't want them in their house. Don't want them at their table. This is a serious question. Where are our rights in the church and how can we lay them down for each other in love? And then in chapter 9, Paul extends his thinking here. All this... Uh, this is where he does actually start to apply this really generally to a whole bunch of different areas of rights. Uh, but broadly, what he gets at here is that we are to put love over rights, not just for one another, but for the sake of the lost. For the sake of those who don't know Jesus. And the way that Paul does this is he makes himself an example. Um, you know, we, we might even look at Paul and be like, you know, it feels like you're being a bit proud here, Paul. But, but like he's not. He's just, he's just holding up. You know what? This is what's happened in my life. And look at the fruit of it. Isn't this what you want to live like? He's a guy who looks to Jesus and sees the glory of Jesus and is therefore affected by that to be like Jesus in the way he treats his own rights. I'm not going to read this whole list of how Paul sacrifices his rights because it's long uh, and, and, and we can't go into it all. But, you know, he talks about these things that he has a legitimate right to. Things like the right to a wife. You know, Paul's allowed to get married, he says. Other apostles have got married, but, but he chooses not to. The, the, the right to be paid. Um, and he, he establishes that in Scripture and says, you know, the, the Old Testament tells us that I have a right to be paid by you. But, but he chooses a different priority over that. And, and the priorities that he keeps coming back to again and again and again and again. We get down in verse 19. He says... For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So, so he lives intentionally in a way that relates to people where they are, so that he might win them, and gives up his rights in order to do that. So he like to, to those who are under the law, he becomes like one under the law so that he might win some. To those who are free from the law, he becomes like one free from the law so that he might win some. To those who are weak, and doesn't that speak to these guys who are saying, you know, we, we've got strong minds, we've got strong consciences, and yet he says to those who are weak, I'm going to become like one who's weak so that I can win the weak, so that they can know Christ. It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's all for the sake of the love of the lost. He gives up his rights, gives up his comforts, gives up his freedoms to meet people where they are. 
there's like a lingering question in the church in Australia, in the, in the West actually, um, which, which you particularly feel attention with when you look at us in comparison to say the church in China or somewhere, or like Iran, and you go like, these guys don't have the freedoms that we have. Now it's not for them, it's not a question of laying down the rights that my government gives me, because the government doesn't give them the rights they just they like they say you know what I'm going to be okay with that because God gives me these rights and I'm going to be okay with my government taking them and the gospel explodes right and and yet here the I don't know if you've noticed the going out of the gospel in Australia does not feel as phenomenal as all of that and and we might ask why and and I think a big part of the answer is this Western Church we're very focused on our rights. We're very focused on, you know what, I want to love people, but I'm going to exercise my rights before I love people. And here's the thing, we might, we might look at Paul, right, and we might, we might think, you know what, he's, he's kind of, he's talking about like giving up his rights, becoming a servant for the sake of winning some, and we might hear that, and, and we might have a tendency to kind of make it symbolic or to make it metaphorical, you know, go, oh, sure, perhaps he gave, you know, perhaps I'm called to, to give up some things, you know. Um, perhaps he gave up some, some things like a, a, t- a tithe. He gave up a tithe every week. That's, that's how I'm called to give up my rights. He's not talking about all of my time and all of my resources, surely. He's not calling me to be willing to sacrifice all of my rights, you know. Surely he can't call someone like me to, to be willing to go to prison, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel in that way. But, but... Here's the thing, like, go to Acts and see how literally Paul takes what he's saying here. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you're understanding the book of Acts is. You know, the book of Acts is the going out of the gospel after Jesus' ascension, right? And, and, and you get to Acts 21 and there's this fascinating and baffling thing if you approach the world from the perspective of rights, through the lens of rights. Acts 21 makes no sense whatsoever because Paul is travelling to Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem he keeps getting met by Christians and what those Christians all say to him is, Paul, God's let us know that horrible things are going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. Like literally he gets to one place and this this Christian prophet named Agabus comes to him and says, Paul, give me your belt and Paul gives him his belt and, uh, and, and Agabus wraps it around his wrists somehow. I don't specifically get how one would do that. And he says, thus they will do to you if you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound, you will be imprisoned. And Paul, like they start weeping for him, right? Because he's intent to go. And Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's ready to lose everything, even his right to live, even his right to freedom of life, if it means that Jesus is honoured and that more hear the good news. And you know what's phenomenally surprising, but probably shouldn't be when we know our God, is that, like, Paul goes, right? And we're like, okay, how's God going to deliver him from this one? And what happens is Paul goes to Jerusalem and they lock him up. And like, there's no earthquake, he's not released. He just gets locked away. And, and because that happens, 
you know, he gets this chance where he declares the gospel to the people. And then he goes before the council and he declares the gospel to the, the Jewish council. And then, and then he's sent to uh, the Roman tribune in Jerusalem and he declares the gospel to the Roman tribune in Jerusalem. And the Roman tribune in Jerusalem sends him to another local ruler, Governor Felix, and, and he declares the gospel to the Governor Felix. And, and Felix is like, well, we've got a King Agrippa in here who's like a local king underneath Caesar. And as they get Agrippa in there, and he declares the gospel to Agrippa. And, and, and then he appeals to Caesar, right? And, and Agrippa goes, could have been free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. And yet, instead, Paul gets sent on a ship to go and see Caesar. And along the way, he declares the gospel to soldiers. And he declares the gospel to locals. And he declares the gospel to anyone and everyone. And then he comes to believe. And he goes to Rome. And maybe he declares the gospel to Caesar. We don't get up to that part of the story in Acts. It kind of finishes before there. But... All of these people hear the gospel because he loves the lost more than he loves his rights. Do you see that? Do you see that that's connected there? That he had an intentional choice to make of does he keep going to Jerusalem or does he back out? You know, must have been tempting. You know, I could have done a lot of things over here and just not followed where God was leading me. But instead he goes to Jerusalem and gets locked up and the gospel goes out. And when Acts ends, you know, the last words of Acts these it says he lived there in rome two whole years at his own expense under house arrest mind you uh and at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of god and teaching about the lord jesus christ with all boldness and without hindrance and and naturally i don't know about you if if you've read acts but kind of i get to the end of it and there's a part of me that just goes yeah but did he get out like (laughs) And, and there might be all sorts of reasons why Acts ends at that point. Maybe it's because that's where the story was up to when Luke wrote it. But I think, I think a big part of why God ordained in his, in his foreknowledge that this scripture, this book of the Bible would end at that point, that the God-inspired word would finish just there, is because the focus is not on whether Paul was free. The focus is on the gospel was going out. It demonstrates, it demonstrates really powerfully what we see here in 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? What we see in so many other places in the New Testament. What we see painted across church history as a whole. The victory of God's people isn't in maintaining our rights. It's not in maintaining our freedom. It's in witnessing to the truth of the gospel, no matter the cost to our rights. This is something that desperately needs to be recaptured in the church in Australia. We live in a day in the West where the, where the church is largely missionally ineffective, like I said before. And this is a big part of it. The Western church, the the South Australian church, dare I say it, our church. We, we tend to love our rights. Think about, I love you guys, every single one of you, and, and I'm not saying this to, to try and put a fire under seat, your seat and make you uncomfortable. I'm saying this because I want to call you in and I want us to follow Jesus faithfully so that one day we show ourselves worthy of the true treasure that is to come. We want to follow the one 
who gave up his rights for us. Are we so afraid to lose a person's good opinion of us that we find us that to be a sufficient reason not to talk to them about Jesus? Are we so afraid of the consequences of losing our freedom? You know, I, I feel that in our culture, right? That, that nervousness that if I, if I speak out, you know, maybe the rules will get tighter on me. If we are a more missional people, maybe the rules against evangelism will get stronger, right? And we're so afraid that we, that we decide, you know, maybe it's better that we just keep quiet and just take those very, very infrequent opportunities where there's just an o- a complete opening, you know, where there's no risk. So often when we think of a gospel opening, we think of a place without any risk. When the Bible thinks of a gospel opening, it thinks of a place with risk, but so much more benefit. I love the story um, uh, in, the, in the book Evangelism as Exiles. By, it's written by a guy who was a misho in Pakistan for a long time. And he, and he tells the story of a girl um, who was in her class, um, who's a Christian, and the rest of her class, her, her tertiary education, university class, aren't Christians. Um, and, and this is a country where you can be locked up for being evangelistic towards Muslims, right? And, and her lecturer goes, like, I'm going to misquote him here, so I didn't have to write this down. But her lecturer goes something along the lines of, Christians believe in three gods. Aren't they crazy? And she's like, my chance! (laughs) And she's like, that's actually not what Christians believe. Christians believe in one God, in three persons, uh, a God of love. They They believe in God the Father, who is the same God as God the Son and God the Spirit, and that God the Father sends his Son into the world to save the lost. Would we see that as an opportunity? Yeah, we talk. We talk a lot about reaching the lost. Are we willing to be like Paul? To have such a high view of Jesus and his sacrifice of his rights that we're willing to step out of our comfort zones so that we can meet people where they are. You know, maybe this is the challenging bit for you. Um, you know, we, we love talking about running a new program or, or putting something on for people to come to. It's great when we're in charge, isn't it? It, it makes it nice and comfortable and easy. Um, you can define the rights in that situation. Um, maybe, maybe an equal idea, maybe a better idea. I'm not saying those things are bad. I love the programs that we run. We run them for a good reason. But maybe something that would just fit so well alongside that would be if we met people where they are, where they congregate with a view to sharing the good news with them and showing them the love of Jesus. What if, what if your missional strategy was to get a membership at the gym, if you can afford such a thing? And just to get to know the gym crowd and to show them the love of Christ and speak Jesus to them when the, when the chances come. What if your missional strategy, someone will get upset with me for saying this, but what if your missional strategy was to go to the pub and to get to know those guys who sit at the front bar and to deal with the awkwardness that you're the guy or gal who sits at the front bar and drinks one drink over like a three-hour period <laughs> for the sake of the fact that you're going to get to know someone who's trying to drown their problems in alcohol. Just, 
just imagine for a second, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to leave us on this image. Just imagine how different this town, this region, and this church might look if we willingly, joyfully gave up our rights because we love to see the gospel go out. If we met people where they are, where they congregate, in their context, and were an intentional presence of Jesus there. If instead of being known as the people who yell loudest and longest about our rights, we were known as those who are willing to become the lowest and the least for the sake of others. Imagine how different this might look. I don't know about you, I get to saying that and I go, wow, I need the spirit's power in that. Wow, I need Jesus to help me. So why don't we pray together? Jesus, Lord, first, foremost and always, we just want to come to you in thankfulness. You gave your rights for us. You gave up what you deserved to give us what we didn't deserve. Life. Peace with God. Lord, lead us to be a Christ-like people. Lead us to be a cross-shaped people who are willing to give up what we have, to carry our cross like you called us to, to give up our rights for the sake of those who need to know you and for the sake of one another. Help us to follow like Paul, to know that we have rights and to surrender them with joy knowing that, that what you're going to do through us is so much more than what we might lose. Knowing that what we've gained in you is so much more. Knowing that we might lose the whole world, but we've gained our soul. We haven't won you over to us, Lord. You've won us over to you by Christ. Lead us to live a life that reflects that truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.